This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 19. The Innocence Commission of San Francisco. Writing Wrongful Convictions. In conversation with Commission Head Professor Lara Bazelon. In September 2020, District Attorney Chesa Boudin announced the formation of a six-member Innocence Commission. Its purpose is to review potential wrongful convictions, make findings as regards innocence claims, and submit those findings to the District Attorney for his disposition. With us today is Professor Lara Bazelon, who heads up the commission. Hi, Lara, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Lara, wrongful convictions are a problem in the United States. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, more than 2,600 people across the country have been exonerated for crimes they did not commit. Here in California, there have been more than 200 known wrongful convictions. Tell us about your work on San Francisco's Innocence Commission. Thank you for bringing this important issue to your listeners. The statistics are actually even graver. Nationally, over 3,000 people have been exonerated, and the statistics are constantly changing because the exonerations are happening so frequently. Mm -hmm. Usually, it's at least one a week. And then in California, there have been 276 to date. And so we're talking about decades, if not hundreds of years of people's lives that have been lost, and also the cost to the victims, because of course, they didn't get justice, they were told that this is the person who did this terrible thing to you or to your loved one, but that turned out not to be the case. And finally, the taxpayers also foot the bill because many exonerees sue for damages once they are actually released to try to get compensated. And of course, the people who pay for that when the city settles are are you and me. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the issue. And then the reason why I, I became involved in the efforts that this DA brought to this problem was because I really believed in his vision of how to deal with it, at least in the city and county of San Francisco. And that was, as you say, to have this independent commission of experts. And so when he asked me to serve as the chair, I was really honored to do it. And I also believe in this model. And and we can talk more about why that is and the successes that we've had. Laura, how did you become involved and interested in this concept of proving innocence to wrongfully convicted individuals. You know, it's interesting. My background is actually as a federal public defender. And so you do not choose your clients and really innocence isn't, isn't the relevant issue. The issue is can the government prove the case against your client beyond a reasonable doubt and public defenders do not pick and choose. And then when I segued into teaching, I got a job offer to run a small innocence project at the Loyola law school in Los Angeles, and it was called the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent. And so I took that position. I hadn't done wrongful conviction work for innocent people, so-called, really ever. I had done post-conviction work as a public defender, but it hadn't been in the context of, okay, this person's main claim is that they're innocent. There mm-hmm. had been other issues. And so I, I was familiar with the law, but not with this particular, very select kind of client. Of course, then the district attorney invited you to join the commission and you headed up. So tell us about the work that you've been doing on the commission here in San Francisco. 
And of course, there's a, a famous case, which we can get onto in a minute. But tell us about setting up the commission, who your fellow commissioners are, and the workings of the commission. And I understand all six of you are volunteers. And thank you very much for your service. Thank you. Yes. So we do not get compensated. We don't even get parking. And <laughs> which in San do. Francisco, in San Francisco, that is a major burden. It is a good point. However, because we really started in the midst of the pandemic, our, our default is to meet over Zoom. So truthfully, we don't even need parking. But in any event, we are assisted by a staff attorney. That person is paid. She's actually my employee and she's paid through funds that I raised in my capacity as a law professor at the University of San Francisco. So she's an employee of the law school, an employee of mine. But her main job really is to serve the commission and make our jobs more manageable because the truth is it's really, really difficult to sift through the mountain of evidence in every single case and get to the bottom of everything and do the writing. So she's great at keeping us on track and drafting the memoranda that we send on to the DA's office. And then the other commission members are a really diverse group and this this model was something that the DA campaigned on. So when he was running in 2019, he pointed out that although San Francisco is a very liberal city, we haven't had any exonerations here that were the result of a collaboration between a DA and the person who was claiming to be innocent. And that's a very popular model in many other cities. And San Francisco really was kind of behind the eight ball. And mm. while technically there was a review unit in the DA's office, it wasn't doing anything. It hadn't exonerated anybody. And his feeling was, well, if you take it outside the office, so it's not prosecutors sort of correcting their own homework or with allegiances that make it difficult for them to be objective and you give it to a panel of people who have experience and diverse experience and diverse viewpoints, but no real skin in the game because they're very divorced from what happened, you're likely to get a fairer result. So, you know, his instruction to us isn't go out and free people. His instruction to us is there's a question that's been raised here and I need you to get to the bottom of what happened. I just need you to tell me the truth. So that's what we do in each case. Mm -hmm. Now, how often do you meet as a commission? We meet at least monthly. We usually meet on Fridays for four hours. Some commission members wish it was shorter. And then we meet as needed. So when we interview witnesses, for example, or we need to meet with an expert, we'll schedule that as an additional meeting. So the meetings we have that are our regular meetings are really to go over what we've done so far and, and if necessary, deliberate and talk through next steps. And then we have the other meetings to kind of follow up on the casework and, and push whatever we're doing forward. Now, your fellow commissioners, are they also attorneys or do they have more diverse backgrounds? Not all of them are attorneys. When we started and the non-attorney who participated in the exoneration that I'm sure we'll talk about is a man named Dr. George Woods. He's a physician and a psychiatrist and, and a very well-known expert in mental health, not a lawyer. And we actually found that to be very helpful. It's, it's great to have someone on there who's not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to Dr. Woods, we have a retired judge, a very distinguished jurist named LaDoris Cordell. She was actually the first black woman appointed to the bench in Northern California. Mm. It's a historic appointment. Mm -hmm. And we have a veteran public defender who's been with the SF Public Defender's Office for about 20 years named Jacku Wilson. And then DA Boudin's, the head of his post-conviction unit is a deputy DA named Arcelia Hurtado. And then there's me. So there's the five of us. For a time, we also had a sixth member who was an innocence advocate and she since rotated out. So we're... We're five right now. I see. Now, let's move on to the exoneration. 
because your very first exoneration took place just two months ago in April, right? Yes. It, the conviction was overturned on April the 18th, 2022. It was very exciting. It was our first case, and we investigated the conviction of somebody named Joaquin Syria. He was convicted in 1991 for a 1990 murder that occurred actually not far from the courthouse where he was convicted mm -hmm. in the Mission District. And the case rested on two cross-racial stranger identifications that were made at some distance in the dark using some fairly unreliable procedures. And then most crucially, the testimony of the getaway driver who was a teenager and who it, we realized or uncovered what had been coerced by the police into implicating Mr. Syria rather than the, the actual person in exchange for complete immunity and, and various other benefits. And so we were able to sort of flesh that out. And then finally, also very importantly, a new witness came forward who was, who was there at the scene at the time and knew everybody involved and had his own reasons for having not come forward at the time in trouble himself, but did come forward ultimately and give his account of what happened, which which we found to be credible, and I think which the court also found to be credible. When this new witness came forward and through a pang of conscience or whatever it was, at that point, Mr. Syria had already served 32 years in prison, right? Yes. And with this pang of conscience, and I guess better late than never, did he come directly to your unit? Uh, what were the how how does how does something like that happen? You know, somebody wakes up one morning and says, you know, I've been struggling with this for thirty years. I can't take it anymore. I've got to get it off my chest. I've got to I've got to confess to what I what I saw, what I witnessed, because there's an innocent man's life at stake here, albeit thirty years later. Who did he turn to? Where where did this where did his what was his first port of call? Well. Mr. Syria, I think, had indicated to his lawyers that this person might well exist. And then a couple of years ago, the lawyers went to see him. He was incarcerated at the time, and they, they tried to get him to cooperate, and he refused to cooperate with them. Subsequently, he was released from prison, and he was actually deported to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And once that happened, he did, as you say, have pangs of conscience. And in fact, all of these people had known each other. They had kind of run in the same circles dealing drugs, doing some other things. And so he, he knew the victim, he knew Mr. Syria, he knew the getaway driver, and he knew the actual killer. And once he was in Cuba, where a lot of their families are, he started talking to the victim's family, he started thinking about what was the right thing to do at that point. And, and really his refusal to cooperate while he was incarcerated came from his not wanting to be a snitch, because of course, in prison, mm -hmm. being seen as someone who rats on other people is frowned upon is the nice way, I guess I could say that to you. Well, it's almost a death, now, almost a death sentence, isn't it? It certainly can be. And for somebody like this person, it would have been really problematic. So in any event, he, he did have a pang of conscience. And then I think they tried to reach out to him again, and he cooperated with them. And, you know, when that happens, there is some suspicion around this. Mm -hmm. If you, if you really knew what happened, it's been 32 years. Why didn't you come forward? And, and why didn't you come forward after five years or 10 years? Why didn't you come forward when they came to you the first time? And when we interviewed him, we posed those questions to him because of course you want those answers. And I will tell you, this is someone who has lived a really 
complicated life with a very checkered past and someone who is also, I think, in his older years, done a lot of reflecting and thinking through not just what he's done wrong to other people, but also what his silence had cost Mr. Syria. And he was very emotional when he talked to us. And it was not fake. It was very genuine. And it seemed clear to us that this was someone who was being candid at long last. I grant you, too late in some ways, but but was really, we believe, telling the truth. And of course, the judge was allowed to, not allowed to, had to make that assessment himself. But that was a really big piece of the puzzle for us, because this was someone who was known to every single person in the story, knew all the players, and was very clear that the killer was actually someone else. How many times did you meet with him? And with each meeting that you had with him, how long did those meetings last? And were they one-on-one, just you and him? Or was it with the whole commission? We met with him as a commission. I think it was twice. Mm -hmm. And the time that was the longest was about, I would say, 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. And his counsel was there. Not his counsel, excuse me. Mr. Syria's attorneys were there as well. We had to do it by a form of Zoom because he was in Cuba and he can't come back to the United States. And we took turns asking him questions and being lawyers, we interrupted each other and went around (laughs) a few times, but we basically asked him every question that we had and we had prepared beforehand. And then afterwards he said, if you have follow-up questions, I'm available. He was extremely cooperative. And I think the next meeting that we had, we felt we had gathered enough evidence that we could sort of start deliberating about about what to do and what was the right result in this case and how to advise the district attorney. You've been a federal public defender. You've dealt with criminals, people with checkered pasts. It's not, this is not your first rodeo. What was, what was your impression of this man in those two 90 minute sessions? Again, I'm, my, my assumption is that because of your background, perhaps you came at this with a, a skeptical eye, a jaded eye. It's interesting. Well, I guess I should quickly say it was definitely one 90-minute session, and then I think maybe we had a much briefer initial meeting, although I'm not even clear about that at this point. Um, I I am a naturally skeptical person, probably for the reasons that you say. I also, I think, want to believe that at this point, having done criminal justice work for 20 years, I'm a fairly good judge of character. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean to say I'm a lie detector. I can tell when someone's prevaricating and tell when they're being truthful necessarily with any kind of absolute machine-like precision. But you do kind of get a feel for why people are telling you things now versus earlier, where they are in their life. And there's ways that you can independently corroborate some of the parts of the story that the person is telling you, at least ideally. And so with this person, there were certain things that he said to us that matched with other evidence that Mm. we had that he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that what he was telling us lined up with with things that were not available to him that we already had processed and pieced together, reinforced and corroborated what he was telling us. But I think on top of that, too, it was really the regret and sadness of this person who is living in a very poor country under pretty dismal circumstances, having made a lot of mistakes and and really just wants to do this one final right thing. Mm-hmm. Once you had had your interviews, what was the next step after that? How did you, at what point did you bring it to the district attorney's attention? 
we deliberated for a very long time because we had a goal of trying to get to unanimity so that there wasn't a dissenting person. And we also had to get to unanimity. There were different claims that had been brought, different legal claims. And so we had to go through each claim and decide how we felt about each claim. And then we had to make sure that we really had fleshed out every person's concerns. And because we were such different people, Mm -hmm. people came from at this with extremely different perspectives. So it took a, a very long time. And then at that point, our staff attorney sent a draft of what we had agreed to. And then, of course, because there's a lot of lawyers in the room, everybody had some things that they wanted to be changed and be different. So that memorandum went around a bunch of times. And then we transmitted it to the DA. And just to be completely clear, the DA is ultimately in control, not us. He Mm -hmm. is supposed to give deference to us. But if he thought that we didn't do a thorough job or he thought he didn't agree with our conclusions, obviously he was free to to override them. And so that was one reason why we were really striving to be unanimous and striving to be very clear on exactly what we had found, because we thought that would probably be something that he would feel more comfortable taking seriously. And then at that point, he conducted his own independent review, which took a couple of weeks, and he ended up agreeing with us. Mm-hmm. Now, once he agreed with that, what were the next steps? Was there a was there a new trial? It's so complicated, these cases. So The next step is that what the DA had to do, legally speaking, was file a pleading that's called a return. And basically, a judge had said, okay, Mr. Syria's lawyers filed this petition. And, you know, there's some things in this petition that really trouble me. And I don't know about this conviction. DA, what do you have to say about this? You need to tell me what you think. And normally what happens in these situations is that the DA says, judge, there's nothing to worry about here. This person is a thousand percent guilty. Here's why. And instead of doing that, the DA said, judge, you're right to have concerns I don't think that this is a valid conviction. I don't think this is a conviction that can be trusted. I don't actually think this person did it. And at that point, the judge sent it out to another judge to say, okay, you're going to decide what to do. And that judge said, I need to hear from a few witnesses myself, and then I'll make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. There was a pretty short hearing he heard from two witnesses and actually the other thing that was happened happened that was interesting he really wanted to hear from the getaway driver Mm -hmm. and we did too but of course the getaway driver did not cooperate with us refused to talk to us and we don't have any power to compel his testimony they compelled his testimony he didn't appear they had him arrested he was brought in in handcuffs and he still refused to cooperate he invoked his fifth amendment rights so he didn't end up testifying Hmm. which was i think something the judge had really hoped that he would do but that didn't happen instead the judge heard from two other witnesses that said that this person, the getaway driver, had confessed to them later that he had lied and implicated the wrong person. So he heard from those two individuals, but not actually from the getaway driver. So once that pleading was made and the uh, the judge had his hearing, what happened next? Well, then it got kind of dramatic because the judge concluded the hearing. He thanked everybody. Oh, there were closing arguments by both sides. And it was kind of interesting because they were sort of on the same side. But I thought the closing arguments knit together really nicely. They, they made a whole out of, out of the parts of the case. And after that, he thanked everybody. And then he said, well, I'm going to set this matter for decision in three weeks. So he set a date and he didn't say what he was going to do. And he didn't say, and I'll let you know. And he didn't say, I'm going to issue a tentative opinion. He just said, I'll see you here on the 18th. Mm-hmm. So when we came to court on the 18th, we didn't know what he was going to do. And what did he do? It was pretty dramatic. So... I brought my students, one of the attorneys works at a, at, a, at a law school clinic. She brought her students. Mr. Syria was there in person 
they had brought him in from the prison. His, his former wife was there. His son was there. His son was only a month old mm-hmm. when he had been arrested. His larger extended family and friends were there. So it was a pretty packed courtroom. And we, I sat, I sat down next to the DA representing the commission and Mr. Syria was seated with his lawyers. He was shackled on the other side of the room and the judge opened by saying we'd given the matter a lot of thought. And then he went through his reasoning, which took, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And of course I'm listening the whole time. It's like when you just want to skip to the last page of the book right, or you yes, just yeah. want to skip to the end of your paper to see the grade. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, my heart was beating so fast. And then at the end he said words to the effect of, and therefore I don't have confidence in this conviction. I I'm overturning this conviction. And then he turned to the DA and said, what do you propose to do? Do you want him held while you consider retrying him? And she said, no, we're not going to retry him. We're dismissing the charges. And was Syria actually released right then and there? No, it's never like the movies. Instead, the deputies came and got him and took him back to jail. He had to be processed out. So he walked out of jail about 48 hours later on the 20th. Still, 48 hours later after 32 years, my goodness. And so that was your that was your first exoneration case from beginning to end. Congratulations. Yes. It sounds Thank like you. it's that's that's very exciting. It's very exciting and it's so frustrating to think that we we have these wrongful conviction cases. But but let's come back. How many other cases do you, are you currently working on that uh and, and and where do they stand? We have one that is in process in the courts. Oh, no, wait, two that are in process in the courts right now, one of which the commission has finished its work on, but is still moving through the system. And the other is still with the commission. I have a conflict of interest in that case. So I haven't participated and I don't know anything about the substance of what they're doing because i'm not allowed to know but i know they still have it because we try to go one at a time and so we haven't taken another one Mm -hmm. well this is uh this is great work how many other cities in california have innocence commissions like we have here in san francisco none we're the only one in the country the other jurisdictions that have exonerations successfully. And I mean, there's a number, but for example, Philadelphia and Brooklyn are, and, and Cook County in Kim Fox's jurisdiction in Chicago, Illinois, they, they have a record number of exonerations. Also Baltimore, those are through an internal unit in the DA's office that's staffed by what they usually do is they bring in somebody from outside the office who isn't a veteran prosecutor, who has some defense experience to head up that unit. And that person reports directly to the head DA, those units are successful. And those are, those are, that's the common model. Unfortunately, in other jurisdictions that have that same model, they don't work that well. And it's usually because whoever's running it is, is, is used to doing things the old way, isn't coming in from the outside, isn't really taking an objective look, or maybe they're not willing to spend the time or the resources to do a thorough job. So that's the traditional model in the rest of the country. And sometimes it works out well, and sometimes it, it really doesn't work very well at all. Well, Lara, kudos to you and your commit, your fellow commissioners for the, the leadership here and getting this one very high profile exoneration. Hopefully there will be more to come. Again, it's, it's great to know that San Francisco is leading the, leading the charge here in, in, in jurisprudence and in righting a wrong. 
what more can we say? Thank you. I mean, I, there is one final thing I would like to to share, and maybe I'm preempting my own op-ed, which I think is going to be running in the San Francisco Chronicle online on Saturday and print on Sunday, which is that it takes a certain kind of DA to create an instance commission. And my real worry with this recall coming up, if the DA were to be recalled, I really worry about the fate of this commission because it's not codified in law. It's It's the vision of a single person. And it would be very sad if without this DA, there would be no more Innocence Commission, or it would exist, but not really do the heavy lifting that we do because they put people on it who aren't willing to be objective. And so there is a real sense for me that this recall is high stakes for many, many reasons, but in in particular, personally for me, because of the commission. Mm -hmm. In terms of formalizing it and institutionalizing the commission, has San Francisco board, has San Francisco's board of supervisors been approached to consider formalizing the commission? We did talk to them a few months back, and then the decision was made, I think it wasn't my decision, but maybe uh, by people with much more authority than me, that it would be better to propose a statewide pilot program and have different DA offices opt into it. And so we did try to do that, but that legislation died in committee. And so I do think that the next best step is probably to go back to the Board of Supervisors. Mm -hmm. Well, Lara, we'll look forward to reading your op-ed this coming weekend in the San Francisco Chronicle. And I guess our listeners can access that at sfgate.com. I think it's actually, it's sfchronicle.com. Oh, sfchronicle. Maybe maybe they cross post, I'm not sure, but it's in the actual physical Sunday paper and it's online at sfchronicle.com. Very good. Well, you heard that first listeners from Lara that her op-ed is coming out in the San Francisco Chronicle on Sunday in the print version and also in the online version. So again, Lara, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your leadership, as we said earlier, and good luck to keeping this Innocence Commission intact and uh, to continue with the good work that uh, obviously you've just started and been very successful at. Thank you so much. Thank you for your good wishes and for having me on, Jim. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Laura. We'll look forward to having you back again. And for our listeners, as the San Francisco experience enters its second year, thank you for your continued support. With 283 episodes published, we're featured on 19 podcast platforms Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.